Welcome, future doctors, to another episode of the Future Minority Doctor Podcast with Dr. Sulma and Marina, where we bring you conversations to empower and inspire you to contribute to your community and the world by becoming a doctor. Welcome, future minority doctors, to another episode. Today, we're going to be talking about developing good study habits, the oh-so-dreaded study. I know, but it is very important to develop great study habits in order to be successful in whatever you do. So Dr. Marina and I will talk a little bit more about it today. Uh, We think that developing good study habits is key to being a successful student no matter what career you decide. Acquiring this skill as early as possible is really important. Uh, What I've found is that when you come from a family where no one has gone to college before, usually these skills are not taught early on or enforced throughout. At least that was my experience with my family. On the other hand, most college-educated parents will teach the skill early on, even starting as young as preschool age for their own children. So they're already acquiring these skills right from the get-go, from three, four years old. So when I was thinking about this, actually, it made me think about an image I came across on Facebook where it shows two people starting a race at the same spot and both at the same finish line. But what you see on this image is one of the racers has a path that is clear and it just seems easier to get to the finish line. And then if you look on the other side of the image, the other racer has rocks, mountains, and some obstacles along the way to get to the same finish line. So when I saw this image, it really made me think about uh, those who have been prepared for that race versus the ones who have to figure it out along the way, and they usually have many hiccups along the way. So I identified more with the race, the racer that had the obstacles. Since I know that some of you may be able to relate to this, Dr. Marina and I are here to be that person to hopefully share some pearls to start learning how to acquire those skills. It's never too late to start. Yeah. It's interesting, Dr. Zuma, that you mentioned, you know, that in your family, your parents weren't exactly teaching you those skills as you grew up. It makes me think about my husband. My husband's family, his parents both had um, advanced degrees. His dad was an architect. His mom had a PhD in English. And he tells me about how he grew up. And, you know, from a very young age, just like you say, he was like required to do like extra assignments during his summer vacation and he was required to read a certain amount of time every day and things like that so he really had a leg up when it came to you know higher education Uh, my family was more like yours like the you know my mom encouraged us to read but there were no requirements we could do whatever we wanted (laughs) um, as long as we had our homework done and those things really make a difference and so you know for those of you who maybe didn't grow up with college educated parents or parents who were teaching you these things along the way, I think we have some tips that might be really helpful. So what are some tips? You know, let's let's start out. What are some tips on developing good study habits, Dr. Zulma? Okay, so let's start out with time management. I think it's really important to learn the skill of how to manage your time with study. So get a calendar or an agenda. I recall when I first learned how to do the time management, it was not until I got to college. So I was 18 years old when I when I learned this. So and I had to sit down with somebody to actually show me how to break down a day. So that way I'm being productive with my study time, my class time, and then also free time. Any tips, Dr. Marina? So I do love that advice. Get a calendar agenda, like Dr. Soma said. I personally, I love those like beautiful planners that I see at the store, you know, they're like spiral bound and they have lots of pretty pages and stickers you can put in everything. But I had to realize that it's really hard to carry around a paper planner. So as pretty as they are, it just doesn't work the best for me. What does work the best for me is just putting my schedule, my agenda, my to-do list, everything on my phone because I always have my phone with me. Um, So I use Google Calendar to schedule everything. I set reminders, like if I have a dentist appointment or some sort of appointment, I set a reminder for an hour before and a day before. That way, like the day before I can think ahead, I can be like, okay, is there anything I need to prepare for my appointment tomorrow? How can I schedule my day tomorrow so that I, I make sure that I'm on time? And then the hour before alarm also goes off to make sure that 
Like I'm ready, I'm showered, I'm dressed, I give myself (laughs) enough time to get there. So phones are great. Before we had smartphones, I used to miss appointments a lot, unfortunately. (laughs) But now that I have my phone always with me, beeping at me, telling me if I need to be somewhere, it's really helpful. So make use of that technology if you have it. There are apps with to-do lists that can be really helpful. I use an app called Todoist to keep track of some of the things they need to do on certain days. But there are lots of different options, different calendars, different lists that you can use on your phone. Great ideas. I do things that are very similar. I would also add if you guys can get into a, a habit, set a day, maybe the first day of the month where you actually sit down and try to plan your month ahead. So what you would do is take your syllabus from school or your school calendar if you're in high school as well. And then you actually start plotting down in that month. When are test exam dates, uh, appointments, whatever it might be, you start planning the whole month before you even get to just doing the daily schedule. And then once you make that daily schedule, review it the day before and try to stick to it. I think that's the hardest part. Your schedule should include your times for classes, work, if you're working, which most of us do during college or even in high school. Um, your study time, and then your extracurricular time as well. It should also include the boring but necessary stuff like sleep, eating, exercise, rest, social activities, and downtime. These times are very important as well. Remember that sleep, social time, and exercise and relaxation time, they're very important to your health and to your brain's ability to learn. I think another thing what helps with uh, making a schedule every day is that we tend to underestimate how long it will take us to do things. For example, for myself, I, I had a problem with procrastination before, so I would think, oh, I can do that in an hour, and it ended up taking me a really long time, and given that I'm a slow reader compared to the peers, um, I had to make more time to read and really digest information. So make sure you give yourself enough time. I don't know, Dr. Marina, if this was an issue for you or if you can provide an example. Yeah, definitely. I think (laughs) like most people, I sometimes fall into the trap of what I like to call reckless optimism, that we tend to assume that things are only going to take us a short amount of time. And realistically, they take like three or four times that long. So just, you know, with experience, you start to learn this, but just, you know, we're telling you this, (laughs) please give yourself more time than you think you need to do things. Unfortunately, I also struggled with procrastination and I would be up pulling all nighters, trying to finish papers. And I just hated life when I was, you know, when it was like four in the morning and I still had a few pages to write. You know, you become miserable if you make that a habit of not giving yourself enough time to do things and then things become miserable. So give yourself enough time to do things. Definitely. So an example of a daily schedule, if you are in high school and you say, for example, your class starts at eight o'clock, what you want to do is give yourself enough time in the morning to wake up. Because I know a lot of you will hit that snooze button like five times or if not more. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So if you give yourself enough time to wake up, you'll be able to get ready. The other big thing is eat breakfast. Sometimes you plan to wake up so that way you can just change, brush teeth, and leave the house. But eating breakfast is so important. So if your class time is at 8, I would suggest at least wake up at 6.30 in the morning so you can get everything done. And say, so again, you're in high school, you go to class, and then school tends to finish between 2 and 2.30. So after that, you want to plan for, say, 2.30 to 5 if you're in sports or extracurricular activities. That's usually when your practice takes place. If not, this is a time that you want to schedule yourself to exercise for at least an hour. And then if not, maybe even study time. So again, depending on your own situation, what's going on after school, this is how you plan it. Then say you do dinner at five or six. So you have to plan that time. And then afterwards, you want to plan time, say seven to nine o'clock at night is your study time. If your studying is done, then that becomes your free time. I strongly encourage everybody at bedtime to turn off all electronics electronics have become a barrier to getting good rest and good sleep and you just feel crummy the next day. So go back to the old school alarms that you have to set and not on your phone so that way you're not tempted. If a message comes in from one of your friends, you get a Facebook alert, Instagram alert, whatever it is. So turn off your your phone. And then on weekends, again, 
that schedule will depend on if you have a project due, if you have social activities, whatever it is, but just try to start learning how to plan each day. Now, if you're in college, it's a little bit different once you get in college because classes can be all over the place. Some are in the morning, some are in the afternoon. It just varies and it varies per semester or quarter system. So decide if you are firstly a morning person or a night person as you're planning because since you're not in PE anymore, you have to schedule a time to exercise. And I would say if you're a morning person, plan the exercise time in the morning. If you're a night person, probably plan. You're likely to do it more. Uh, wake up early so you have enough time to eat again. I find a lot of college students skip breakfast to get to class. So again, breakfast is very important. So make time for it. Study in between classes or create study blocks throughout the day. If you have, say, a class at 8 o'clock that ends at 9, your next class isn't until 11 or 12. So you have about a two-hour study break in between. Go to the library and start studying. And then also, Know how easily you get distracted when you're building these study hour blocks because if you get distracted easily, then you need to choose where you're studying. So if you are one of those, as I was, I had to go to the library or a quiet coffee shop, okay? But some people can study fine where there's a lot of movement going on. So you know yourself and pick the right place. And then also plan a bedtime so you can sleep at least eight hours. I think this is also very challenging for a lot of college students, especially when you live in a dorm and you want to socialize. But keeping eight hours sleep is very important for you to function and for your brain to be able to absorb material the next day. So then I would also add that if you are feeling once you say you, you do your daily schedule and then you're feeling too overstretched and you're feeling anxious, you probably have overextended yourself and it's time to cut some things out. So you might just have to readjust as you go, um, depending on what your activities are and, and prioritize. So again, when you're prioritizing, you've got to think about what you need versus what you want. So learning to distinguish the two, you might have to drop out some stuff of what you want because you got to stick with what you need. We cannot do it all. There's only 24 hours in a day, so just make sure you, you learn how to prioritize as well. So, Dr. Marina, do you want to share some experiences as far as uh, with scheduling? Yeah, so um, just a few years ago, actually, when I had uh, finished residency and my husband and I had moved to uh, San Diego, I was unpacking all these boxes that had sort of moved with me since college. And I was unpacking one box and I found an old planner, one of those leather bound like zipper ones <laughs> from like the early 2000s. And I looked through it. It was my college planner that I had like my freshman or sophomore year in college. And it was really funny looking through it because I found like a schedule that I had made for myself. <laughs> and mm -hmm. it was just so ridiculously optimistic, like overly <laughs> optimistic. Like I was I think trying to take way too many classes, like taking five classes, trying to audit a class. And I just had these really unrealistic goals for myself looking back at it. And at the time, I thought I was just being like very ambitious and I was going to work really hard and totally be able to do it. And it totally backfired. So, you know, we need to be realistic. <laughs> um, if we try to do too much, we can actually shoot ourselves in the foot and think, you know, we can end up. Um, over scheduling ourselves, we can end up really anxious, depressed, stressed out, not getting enough sleep, our health can suffer if we try to do too much. So just like be realistic from the start. Now, sometimes you are going to have to have times in your life where you have to cram a lot of things into one period of time. And if it happens once in a while, because it has to, it's fine. But if you make a habit of trying to overextend yourself, your, your health is going to suffer. Your mental health is going to suffer. It's just not good. So be realistic. Don't try to, you know, like conquer the whole world in one semester. <laughs> you just can't do it. <laughs> be nice to yourself. And a part of that is making a realistic schedule. It was funny looking back at that schedule I had made for myself because it was totally unrealistic. Because <laughs> you were an overachiever as are I, many of yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So again, this is a work in process. And I said, it's never too late to learn how to actually manage your time. And again, I wasn't introduced to this concept until I was 18 years old, which is when I arrived to college. I think I had a big issue, as I said earlier, with procrastination. 
I was what you would probably call a chronic procrastinator. So I think when if you are that and you identify with that, it's trying to understand the reason why you procrastinate. Procrastination is usually not a time management problem. It's a psychological problem. Here we go talking about psychology again, right? Uh (laughs) It has to do with everything. (laughs) So for example, many procrastinators are perfectionists. If you want everything to be perfect, then starting on a project might be frightening because what if you start early, give it your best, and then the result is imperfect. But if you wait until the last minute, then you can make the excuse that your project was not perfect because you were in a hurry, not because you were not capable of doing it. So guilty there. (laughs) (laughs) If procrastination becomes a habit, then we start to dread doing things because we remember how miserable it was last time. But why was it miserable last time? Because we procrastinated and had to be up all night to finish. In order to break the cycle, we have to stop procrastinating in order to prove to ourselves that most things actually are okay or even pleasant if we give ourselves enough time to do it. Again, I'm guilty of this. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) And then procrastinating because you have overextended yourself with other activities and are putting those first since you think those are more time sensitive. Again, I'm very guilty of this. I had an issue when I was in college, not so much high school. I think it was more so college. I was, I'm very super extroverted, lots of friends, very active on my campus. I wanted to conquer and change the world, all of those things, and a site I was trying to study. So I often in college ended overextending myself, but probably doing more of the social things than the studying. But because I didn't know how to manage my time. So once I really learned and really realized that having a schedule is important and how it works, I started sticking to it more and had to actually decline. If somebody asked me, oh, do you want to do this? Or there's this and this going on? I had to say no. I don't know if you want to share some examples, Dr. Marina, that you went through. Yeah, I mean, like you, I was a chronic procrastinator. I think partly like I learned that from my family my mom just had a lot of stuff going on. And so sometimes out of necessity, like uh, projects would be left to the last minute. And so even in um, middle school and high school, I remember procrastinating, you know, starting to pull those all-nighters even in high school when I had big big projects due because I hadn't given myself enough time. Now, procrastination is also interesting because if you are a chronic procrastinator, sometimes it's because you can do it and get away with it. And for a long time, I think that was my situation. Like, I wouldn't procrastinate so much that I would fail. I would procrastinate just enough so that I would have to pull all-nighters and be miserable, but I would actually do still pretty well. And so, you know, I learned that I could get away with it (laughs) in a way. And so I kept procrastinating and procrastinating. And so it wasn't really until medical school that it started to become a problem because I was like, I just can't cram all of this information into my head in such a short period of time. And so that's where I really had to change some of those habits (laughs) Um, because there's just too much. You can't pull an all-nighter and learn everything about biochemistry. (laughs) Definitely agree with that. In the past, I've heard a lot about active versus passive learning. What is active learning? What's passive learning? What can we learn from these two types of learning? Okay, so it's important for you to recognize whether you're an active learner or a passive learner. Um, The passive learner is more the traditional learning, and I'll go into it. So active learning refers to teaching in which instructors actively engage students during class time. This doesn't mean just they lecture and they call out on you, but it's actually doing activities with the students while they're teaching in order to engage you more in what topics you are learning. And then there's passive learning. This refers more to the traditional method of teaching where the instructor is standing in front of the class teaching and the students just listening. And this traditional learning, I think, is uh, what you will see mostly in colleges and medical schools. But I think they're starting to try to incorporate the active learning model instead. So why is this important to know? Multiple studies have showed that 
underrepresented minorities do better with active learning than with passive learning. So in 2016, there was a study um, that looked at peer-led teen learning model, which is a well-defined active learning model involving small group interaction between students. And they compared the minority students with traditional learning model, which is where you just sit and listen. And this was specifically um, studied because they wanted to see how they can increase retention in STEM classes. Uh, Many of you already know what STEM is, but in case you don't, science, technology, engineering, and math courses. And the reason this is important is because there's not a lot of minorities in these fields, right? This is why we want you to become doctors. So what the study found was that the minority significantly did better in the group learning model rather than the traditional approach. And it's important to know this because this is how we're going to retain more minority students. The students who did not do well in introductory STEM courses are far less likely to retain and keep on with those classes or in those majors. And when instruction involves only traditional lecture, there's a tendency for students to feel isolated and hopeless if they're not doing well. I will add, though, as a side note, small group learning can also produce some anxiety in some students, and that just depends who's in your small group. But overall, a lot of the studies just show that minorities do better when they're learning in a group setting versus just the traditional method of sitting down and listening to a teacher or instructor um, or professor um, do their teaching. Yeah. You know, the when I was in my master's program for education and in other places too, I remember learning that, you know, kind of the old model of learning, like how we used to think about learning is that, you know, the learner is just this like empty brain, this like vessel for information or container. And the teacher's job is to just fill that brain with information. <laughs> and so that's where we get these models mm-hmm. of more passive learning that have become customary that have become the norm. A professor stands in front of a class and just lectures, and that's how he or she transmits information to the students. And the student, just by listening to the information, is supposed to suddenly put it in their brain permanently and learn it. Now, modern research has shown that that's not really how learning works. (laughs) We're not just like empty brains that are going to receive everything that we listen to. We actually have to do more work to understand the information and to store it into long-term memory. So that's where active learning, like you're saying, really comes in is we have to do more than just listen in order to actually learn something. And that's really important to understand. Like you said, underrepresented minority students, they do better with active learning. And I think most people, the reality is that most people do. Active Mm -hmm. learning is going to be much more helpful than just listening or just reading something. So Dr. Zuma, what are some examples of helpful study skills that utilize this active learning rather than passive learning? All right. So some some higher yield activities that you can do if you are an active learner, um, we can even separate that into like group-based or individual-based. So if you are an active learner in a group, things that you can um, thrive in is if you get into a study group. The study groups really help because there's a dialogue and discussions that go on. So you can together learn how to discuss a topic if you don't understand it. So again, you learn better the material when you teach it. So even being able to explain it to somebody in your own words really helps you retain that information and truly understand it. Other things is like role playing can help with active learning when you're in a group setting, um, team-based writing, you write this, I write this, and together you come together so that way you can understand the material that you are learning better. The other thing too with doing group studies is that you can learn strategies of um, how to study from other group members. So it's almost like peer-to-peer learning. So that's also another important thing with it. Uh, Something else that I did was the group self-testing. I did this often in medical school, almost before every exam. I had a set core group of students that I would always study with. And while we were studying, we would test each other on material, ask each other, explain this, and then we would explain it. If we didn't explain it correctly, the other one would ask questions or intervene to correct. So that way we were learning together. And I think that's how you can internalize better. So that worked very well for me. The other thing is, again, me being extroverted, it helped with my motivation. It's so hard for me to study on my own. But if I knew that I was being held accountable by a group to meet up somewhere to study, 
I would do it because I didn't want to let my group down. The other thing too that I would suggest is try to sometimes mix things up with the people in your group. Um, so not necessarily always studying with the same people because you will learn a lot from other groups as well if you mix it up as well. And then pick wisely who you're studying with, okay? Because there could be in within a study group some people that might be more toxic than helpful. So make sure the people that you're choosing to study are people who are providing a supportive environment where you don't feel threatened to ask questions, I think is very important. And especially... I would say, and I don't know if you agree with me, Dr. Marino, within the science field, there's so much oh, competition yes. within the science field. <laughs> so you want to make sure that the group you choose is a group that's wanting to help each other, not outdo each other. So also selecting a good supportive group is very important. If you kind of get a gut feeling and an instinct that this person might not be very good to study with, you follow your instinct and you look elsewhere as well. And then also, if you are in a group study, just make sure you guys are staying focused. I don't know if you want to add anything to that, yeah, Dr. Marina. I, I agree with all of those um, suggestions. Um, I think the group-based learning can be really helpful because, like you said, it helps you stay motivated because, you know, you're with a group of people that have the same goal and are all trying to learn. You can help explain things to each other when you get stuck. You can help test each other. It is a very good um, form of active learning. Although sometimes when you're in a group, you can also just be sort of studying on your own, but you have someone to fall back on if you don't understand something. So it's engaging that like individual active learning with group active learning as well. Definitely. So now say, um, just like Dr. Marina mentioned, the individual active learning. So whether you're within that group or it's on your own time because your group couldn't get together. So um, some examples where it could help where you're doing individual active learning is like journal or reflective writing. So if you read something, kind of uh, summarizing it on your own in your own words, maybe writing it out to see if you really understood it. The other thing that helped me greatly was creating charts, diagrams, concept maps. And what I realized, this is really good for the visual learner. So uh, there's some people, and, and you'll know this about yourself, that if you see it, you're able to absorb the material more. There are some people not as much visual learners. They can be auditory learners, which is where they just can listen things over and over again, and that, that helps them. So again, uh, if you are a visual learner and you recognize that about yourself, create charts. It does take time to actually read, review material, and then recreate a chart or a diagram to help you organize the information better. But I find the act of doing that chart, you're organizing that material so that way it's retained that way in your brain as well. The other, another good practice for active learning is self-testing. So again, if there's practice tests or any information quizzes that maybe you took and didn't do well on, just again, practicing them is very important as well because that practice, the practice of self-testing really helps with being able to retrieve the information that you learned. And if you're an auditory learner, as I mentioned earlier, auditory learners are really good with recording a lecture. So when you go to class, you record it and then or sometimes some some of the professors will have it on a podcast or they'll record it somewhere where you can access it. And then some people do well with just listening to that lecture over and over and over again. So if you're one of those auditory learners, then you want to practice doing that. That I, I'm not an auditory learner, so I knew that didn't work for me. So again, you have to figure out what works best for you. So then in, in terms of for those passive or more traditional learners that just can listen, I will say those learners tend to just reread notes, highlight or underline their notes and can retain. But I will tell you it's a small proportion of students, uh, especially I would say minority students that are good at doing this. So I would probably focus more to help you with your studying to do more of the active learning as we know that the data and the research just shows that overall for most minority students, especially that are going into the sciences as well. Absolutely. I would definitely encourage um, people to do more of the active learning techniques like summarizing concepts, concept maps, diagrams, flashcards, things like that. Because for some people, like Dr. Zuma said, 
just reading a chapter and rereading it and highlighting it, it's going to be fine. Some people learn okay that way. But for most of us, we're going to learn better if we're actively engaging the material. So not just passively reading it, but actively trying to test ourselves on it, actively trying to understand it, to rework it, to explain it. So again, you know yourself best, but if you're the type of person that has just been reading the chapter and rereading your notes or textbooks and you haven't been doing well, it probably means that that's not the best study method for you. You need to try to incorporate more of those active learning techniques. Agreed. And, and I think that's what I discovered along the way. I think in high school, I did more of the traditional learning. I got by, but I don't know if I was able to retain much information. And I think once you get to college and medical school, it's very important that you retain that information because there's testing involved. And then in medical school, there's application of what you learn to patients. So you want to make sure you retain. So active learning at that point is very important for you to discover if that's what's working for you. And it did tremendous work for me to be able to learn that I'm an active learner and then actually practice mm -hmm. it. Yeah. One of the turnarounds for me in college when I really started to have more success in biology specifically was when I started to use flashcards. <laughs> so I would, you know, go through the lecture notes and kind of try to figure out what the key concepts or the major concepts were that were more likely to be tested. And then I just took like a eight and a half by 11 piece of plain paper and I folded it up into well, many squares. These were my like cheap flashcards. <laughs> um, and I would just like use each square on that page as like a quote unquote flashcard. And so on the front side, I had just kind of the concepts, the words. And then on the back, I had sort of a definition or a description or an answer. And so I would just randomly kind of go through that page and on the front, like pick them at random and then test myself. Okay, what is this concept? What is this word? What is the answer to this question? And that really forced me to actually like have those concepts deep in my brain, as opposed to just, you know, when you read something, you maybe recognize it, but when you're actually being tested on it, you can't just recognize something. You have to actually be able to recall it from your brain most of the time. And so flashcards are an excellent way of doing that. And for me, that's really what turned a corner. I started to do a lot better in my classes when I started using flashcards because it was a form of testing myself over and over to really prove to myself that I knew the material. I recall with myself, like I think the biggest discovery was I did a post-bac program before starting medical school. And part of the post-bac program is we had to meet, she was a cognitive learning professor. And so she did a lot of teaching to our small group before and also did some testing just as far as like comprehension skills, reading skills, and so forth. So when she took all that data together and met with me one-on-one, -on -one, she kind of led me to to realize that, look, these are your strengths. These are probably your weaknesses. So this type of learning style might work better for you. And that's where I started learning the charts. And flashcards did not work on me on the other hand. So again, you have to realize like what works for you. Charts and diagrams were amazing. So once I started doing the charts and diagrams, which took me a long time, but as I'm, I was making it, it was almost like creating an imprint in my brain. So I literally recall when I was doing an exam in medical school, if it asked me a question, I could literally visualize where in my chart that question was or where I would find the answers. And I would be able to just go into that mode of, and again, I think because I'm a visual learner, where I would find it in that chart and say, oh, this must be the answer by process of elimination. So that's that's kind of how my brain worked in order for me to be able to take tests. So very important for you guys all to recognize and, and you might have to experiment. Does this work for me? That didn't work. Let's see if this works for me. So again, you know yourself best. Um, yeah, I love that you mentioned those diagrams. That's also something that worked for me. The only thing I would say about that is you have to make sure you have enough time to do all of that work. Because yes. when I was in medical school, <laughs> yes. you know, I love diagrams, I love charts and everything. So I was taking the time to try yeah. to organize like these like, you know, tons and tons of pages of notes. I was trying to organize them all into diagrams and charts. And I realized at some point that that was actually taking me way too long. So, you know, when you get to the point where you have a lot of information to learn, 
just make sure that you use your time wisely. You don't necessarily have the time to make beautiful, perfect charts for everything. So you have to focus on what's the most important. Um, Cause I learned that the hard way I was spending, I realized I was spending too much time diagramming and mm -hmm. organizing the information and not enough time practicing it and learning and doing flashcards. But it can be really helpful because like you, I'm a visual learner. And during some of those tests, like I would like think of those charts I had made and like be able to remember them that yeah. way. So mm -hmm. again, everyone is a little different. Yeah, exactly. So speaking of that, everybody is a little yes. bit different. We all have different um, preferences and styles of learning. Some people, like we mentioned, can do okay with passive learning, whereas most of us need active learning. Some of us are more visual. Some of us are more auditory. Some of us are more kinesthetic, having to do with like movement in the world of your body and stuff. But what influences our learning styles, Dr. Zuma? So I think there's several things that will influence each of our learning styles. One would be comprehension and reasoning levels. So what does this mean? Being able to take what you learn and put it in your own words. Okay, so some people can read and then they can't transfer what they just read. So again, that is comprehension that you're able to read or learn and then be able to translate it in your own words so we know that you fully understand it. What I will say is that what can influence though, and especially in minorities, and why sometimes we may struggle with comprehension or reasoning levels is I think in uh, students or people who have English as a second language can definitely um, influence this. Our own academic exposures as a child, just like we mentioned earlier, if you're exposed to reading and doing intellectual activities, educational activities early on, you'll probably be better at this later on in your life. How much you read as a child? Were you even exposed going to a library? I mean, there are kids that never go to a library routinely. I was one of them. So again, that will influence how well we develop our comprehension and reasoning levels. Also, your parents' academic background. It's also important to note, even though your comprehension and reasoning level might not be a strength of yours, the good news is that it can evolve and we can improve it over time, okay? So just to give you an example in medical school where I saw what comprehension really was. Um, so I would see students who obviously can read well and memorize well, and they were able to reproduce and memorize facts so good. Okay, I was not one of those. However, um, when it came to translating the medical information into the patients or into the real world, they struggled. Okay, so again, we might have strengths in certain areas, weaknesses in other areas, but the good news is that we can evolve and we can learn and get better. Okay, again, this is growth mindset here. Absolutely, growth mindset all the way. <laughs> and then another thing that can also influence your learning style is your reading level, as I mentioned earlier. So it's also influenced by the previous things that I had mentioned with comprehension level. And also important to acknowledge is that external factors also influence our learning, and it's, it's real. So, for example, stereotype threat, racism, discrimination, uh, mental health, family obligations, finances, all of these things can influence your comprehension, reading, and learning as well, and they're real, and we see it among minority students. But we will go into these external factors in a later podcast as well, but I thought they were worth mentioning. So now that we've talked about active and passive learning, what are some of the other things that students can do to help them perform better? I know that one of them, you know, one of the things that lots of students struggle with is test taking. How can we develop better test taking skills? All right. So test taking, that's a big one for minority students as well. Um, so practicing tests, practice, practice, practice. I think that just helps us one how to read a question, understand the question, and then even you'll end up seeing trends in how to choose answers to a question as well. And say you do a practice test or it's a real test and you get some questions that are wrong, study the wrong answers. Again, I would say just don't memorize the correct answers. I think a lot of students do that. You want to understand the why. Why did you miss it? How can I learn it? The reason is because then you're going to be able to retain that information versus just regurgitate it. So make sure you understand why, okay? I strongly do believe that test scores do not measure how good of a doctor you can be. I think uh, Marina and I are examples of that. So again, 
growth versus fix. The test will not define how capable you are. Instead, take the test as a measure of, oh, this is an area I need to work better at. So let me go ahead and study more on that and just don't memorize the right answer. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Again, tests do not define you. Please, please believe that. And practice, 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 practice. People say practice makes perfect. I don't really believe that you can get perfect at anything, but practice makes better is how I like to say it. So another important thing, apart from test taking, um, I think it's really important to find meaning in what you're learning. What do you think about that, Dr. Zulma? Yes, finding meaning in what you're learning can just change your attitude and your approach when you're studying for something. So um, you want to find a way that you can create your internal motivation to want to learn the material. So again, I'll take physics as an example, which was for mine, which was a dreaded subject for myself. So after I struggled with that first test, I had to really step back and think about, okay, I need to take this course. I need to try to get a better grade on it. So I have to figure out a way because at that point, the relationship between physics and myself was was ruined <laughs> after that test. So it's I had to reestablish that relationship with my brain and the subject matter so I can do better. So I started, I recall starting to think about ways that it can become interesting. So if I spun it where, oh, if I can actually explain why this works through math, that's kind of neat. Let's figure this out. So again, changing your attitude and uh, your interest in wanting to learn it, although I did not want to be a physicist, but wanting to learn it so I can improve my grade really helped with my motivation to keep going in order to pass those those courses. What about you, Dr. Marina? Yeah, um, I agree. You know, lots of times we take classes and we ask ourselves, like, what's the point? Like, why am I taking chemistry? Why am I taking physics? Why am I taking calculus? All that stuff. So it can be frustrated when you're not interested in what you have to study. For example, physics in your case. A lot of people aren't really excited about physics, using that as an example. And also physics teachers don't always know how to make it interesting for students. So we do ask ourselves often, like, what's the point? Why do I have to learn this? What does electromagnetism have to do with being a doctor? Right. <laughs> well, the fact is that most doctors won't ever have to use a lot of what they learn in high school or in college ever again. I've never needed to use one of Maxwell's equations as a doctor. <laughs> However, I do use medical technology that relies on those principles of electromagnetism that I kind of learned during physics. Some of you might at some point in your life get an MRI, which is magnetic resonance imaging. And MRI machines use electromagnets to create a detailed image of the human body. So if you get a knee injury playing soccer and you have to have an MRI to see if you tore a ligament that's the technology like that's where it comes from so it's kind of cool to at least have a little bit of understanding of the background of the you know the science and scientific principles that go into a lot of the technology that we use all of the drugs that we use in medicine they were developed by chemists and so you know it's kind of cool to have a little bit of that understanding of chemistry and organic chemistry and how chemical structures come to be created discovered and created so even if you personally never have to remember something in the future, like <laughs> the chemical structure of amino acids, it's important to realize that sometimes the point of taking a class is not really to learn something in particular. It's actually to get good at learning. So remember, you're going to have to learn a whole lot of things in medical school. The better you get at learning anything, the better you will be at learning the things you need to know to be a doctor. Learning, just like anything, it's a skill. It's a skill in and of itself. So next time you feel frustrated about not understanding algebra or chemistry or history, remember, it's not just about the algebra or the chemistry or the history. It's about how to face the challenge of learning something. So even if you don't get an A in chemistry, you can ask yourself, did I get better at learning something new? I, um, I also think that um, things that can help us as finding meaning is finding mentors because I feel like the mentors can remind us why we're doing what we're doing. So again, if you can, finding a mentor is very important to keep your motivation going and your interests going to do well. There's also um, coaching. 
what coach, you know, so what coaches do is that they help with guidance and they help you find meaning in what you are doing. Um, I will say coaches do cost money. So it would be something to consider if you can find a mentor. So um, what about, you know, when we think of studying, how can we space out our studying in an optimal way? Is there one way of spacing out our studying that's better than another? So spacing is also something to consider. The studies do show as well that retention of information is less if you do longer study blocks. So sitting down to study for six hours versus breaking it down to two-hour blocks and giving yourself some rest in between, you'll likely do better if you get you do small blocks versus long blocks. I don't know if that's what you did, Dr. Marina, when you were in college or medical school. Yeah, you know, I think it can be pretty scary to think about like, oh, I have to go study for eight hours at the library. It can be overwhelming. So um, breaking it up into smaller study blocks, like maybe think about it as like, okay, I'm going to do like one or two hours of physics and I'm going to do one or two hours of history and then I'm going to do, you know, two hours of something else. Like that can make it more digestible. (laughs) It can make it um, not seem so scary. Um, I remember when I was studying for the MCAT, actually, I took like two months, two and a half months during the summer to study. And I forced myself to go to the library each day for about seven or eight hours and just study. And that was pretty overwhelming to just to think, oh my gosh, I have eight hours of studying ahead of me every day for like two months. <laughs> um, and I would actually break it up. So I would like kind of change the subject I was studying every couple of hours. And also this is a little bit weird for some people, but I grew up with a you know pretty religious family. And I remember someone um, in my church growing up saying that when he had studied for the bar exam, which is the exam required to become a lawyer, he had the system where he would study for an hour and then read his Bible for 15 minutes and then study for an hour and read his Bible (laughs) for 15 minutes. And um, at the time, you know, I was like, I I need God to help me with this because I don't know if I can do it on my own. So I decided to copy him and I did the same thing. I would like study for an hour or 45 minutes and like basically out of every hour for 10 or 15 minutes, I would read my Bible, which I know is not everyone's cup of tea, but at the time that was something that I valued. And actually, looking back, it did really help me. And I don't know if it was, you know, not necessarily anything spiritual or religious, or just the fact that I wasn't requiring my brain to focus on something for too, too long. So whatever it is that you choose to break up your study time with, I think it's important to break it up because it gives um, your brain a little bit of a break, a little bit of recovery time, and it can actually really improve your studying to break things up into smaller blocks. Agreed, Dr. Marina. So I just mentioned that I would go to the library to study because it was a quiet place. So that makes me think about, you know, a lot of the distractions that we face um, when it comes to studying. How can we limit those distractions? What should we try to do? So one, as you mentioned, you find a setting or a place where you can study. If you easily get distracted, people are coming in and out, you probably don't want to go to a coffee shop. A big challenge nowadays is just um, all the electronics that are available. There's a lot more available now than when Dr. Marina and I were undergraduates. Uh The cell phone. And then the cell phone alone is a little mini computer that allows you to socialize on so many venues and with everybody all over the world. And just having that right by your books or by wherever you're studying can impair and distract you to study and then using your time effectively versus checking who sent you a message and what is so-and-so saying. So again, this will impair your ability to concentrate. So something that I did when I had an exam coming up in college is the night before or the couple nights before where and I was studying because of the midterm or final exam that was coming up, I actually would turn off my phone because I didn't want uh, to see any messages and I didn't want to receive any calls. Reason being, I always was fearful that I would get a call from a family member and something's going on. And as soon as I'm talking to them, find out about our family issues, At that point, my thinking ability is going to be impaired, hence my studying ability will be impaired and likely will affect the outcome of my test or my exam. So I got into a habit of actually just during testing times turning off my phone. 
it was better not to hear anything so I can completely use all my energy to focus and, and study. I don't know about you, Dr. Marina, if you you did anything like that. So luckily, you know, we didn't have smartphones to the same extent as people do today. But cell phones are distracting, smartphones in particular. I've talked to some medical students that they literally just put their phone in a different room while they're studying. Because, you know, if you're trying to practice just the <laughs> willpower, you're telling yourself, oh, I'm just not going to look at it. I'm just not going to hear it. I'm just not going to click on it. You know, that's actually wasting mental energy. So it's brain power, mental energy that you could be using to concentrate and focus on what you're learning. And instead, you're actually requiring your brain to spend some of that energy resisting mm. your phone. And so putting your phone, if you have to, in a different room where it's out of sight, out of mind, is actually going to save you some of that mental energy. And just instead of just telling yourself, oh, I'm just going to resist it, I'm going to resist it, I'm going to resist it, because willpower takes mental energy. So I think that's a great piece of advice. If you can do it, do it. I know sometimes when I'm trying to focus really hard on a project, it helps to just not have my phone around yes. me. And the other thing too that I'd like to just add is also if whether you do well with music or not when you're studying. Some people do great and it actually helps them really focus on what the material they're studying. Some other people become distracted because depending on the music, it can trigger thoughts and your mind goes to la la land. <laughs> so just find out who you are and if it works or it doesn't work for you. And there might be certain music works and other music doesn't. So um, also that to keep in mind. Yeah. My husband loves to like work and study with music on and I get really distracted by it. Like if it's music with words, I want to sing along. Even if it's music like classical music without words, the mood of the music affects my mood. <laughs> it's kind of weird. And so I find like if it's a really like, you know, like high energy song with a lot of violence and fast paced, I feel myself starting to get like anxious and nervous, like the music. And so I find that just no music, a silent uh, environment is best for me. But it's different for everybody. Everybody responds differently. So you know, and sometimes if I have to, if I have to be up really late and I need something to help keep me awake, music can be a good energizing influence, but it really depends on the situation. Find what's best for you. So moving on, Dr. Zoma, what about, you know, one of the things that one of the things that I have to admit that I did sometimes was trying to cram for exams. What do you have to say about cramming versus maybe more consistent study over time? So I think we mentioned this earlier with the procrastination issue, because this is what procrastinators do. We cram. Uh -huh. <laughs> so um, definitely not a good way to study. One, it impairs your sleep the night before. And two, it actually will affect your retention. You might memorize everything because you crammed it, but you're likely to forget everything as well. Versus if you break it up over several days before an exam or before an essay is due, you're likely to retain the information better and you're doing the work under less amount of stress. Again, stress will take away mental energy. So there's always going to be a sense of stress involved with any test taking or if a paper is due, but it exponentially grows if you're cramming or trying to pull it off the night before. So breaking it off, breaking it up a couple of days before will really, really help. And if you can start doing that in high school and college, it's a really good habit that you're forming for when you get to medical school, because you need to do it that way in medical school, because there is too much to learn, too much to know that you have to divide it up over time. And then this falls into what we talked about time management. Okay, so again, bringing out your schedule, plotting it down. I have a test this date. How am I going to break the material over time? So that way, the night before, I'm not up all night trying to cram everything in. Definitely. And again, you need to think back about your previous experiences. Sometimes, you know, let's say you have on your schedule, okay, I have a five-page paper due on Friday. I'm going to write one page each day. Okay, that's a good goal. Well, maybe, you know, Monday comes along and you're like, oh, something came up. I have to do this instead of write the paper. So it's okay. I'll just do two pages tomorrow. <laughs> and then Tuesday <laughs> comes along and you're like, oh, something else came up. I'll just write three pages, <laughs> on, you know, tomorrow. And it, that's a bad habit. You know, 
sometimes it's true emergencies come up Mm -hmm. unforeseen situations happen but you can't make that a habit because again that habit becomes that you leave it all to it ends up being thursday and all of a sudden instead of one page to write you have the whole paper to write and you get into that high stress mode you're worried you're miserable because you have to stay up late writing this paper and it's stressful it's more stressful than it would have been if you had just forced yourself to write one page each day or a part of it each day one section whatever so again we get into this cycle where we dread doing something because the last time we did it we crammed or we waited until the last minute and it was miserable so in order to get out of that cycle again you have to start breaking things down into pieces You have to start teaching yourself that, oh, if I just sit down to write one page, it's actually not that bad. I can do it, right? Yeah, and I think when you actually do do that, what you'll realize is once you've completed that task, you're going to feel so good about yourself because you completed the task. But again, it's Mm -hmm. just a getting in practice of doing it is where you'll start finding that positive reinforcement. Okay, wait, this actually felt good that I've done... Uh, if it's a five page paper, a fifth of it already. Oh, and then the next day, oh, I'm almost halfway done. So Mm -hmm. again, getting a good practice of doing this because procrastination will not work in medical school. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Or even in lots of parts of college, it's just, (laughs) you, you can't keep doing it forever for most people. Another thing is sometimes something I've learned is that sometimes the hardest part is just starting. Mm -hmm. Like when you actually start, then you realize like an hour in, oh, this actually isn't that bad. Maybe I can keep going and maybe I can write two pages today instead of just one. So uh, just getting over that hump of the resistance to starting is a lot of the challenge. So if you just train yourself to like get over those thoughts that are making it difficult for you to just sit down and start something, you're going to realize that, you know, with practice, it gets easier and easier to just start. Agreed. I think that even translated to exercise. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) absolutely. Very true. All right. Another thing that um, I think is helpful and I was not very good at in college, was asking for help. So what do you think about that, Dr. Zuma? How can our students learn how to get better at asking for help? I think uh, if you listen to the last podcast, it's getting over the fixed mindset. I think a lot of the fixed mindset has to do with not wanting to ask for help because then it's a reflection of what your abilities are. So I think if anything, please ask for help. Even if you're in high school, I say I tell my patients all the time if they're stuck or not getting good grades, I say, please ask for help. And this can come in various forms. One is if you do study groups, you ask your peers, you ask your group mates that are there if they can help you understand a topic. You can also go and talk to a professor, a TA, a teacher if you're in high school during their office hours. They can't know if you need help unless you ask, okay? And there's nothing wrong with asking. I would strongly, strongly want you guys to ask for help because it's not good to wait until you're completely behind or lost in the material because then it's just going to be harder to catch up. So please reach out early. And I know some some of you, and I think for myself, just like Dr. Marina said, I wasn't used to asking for help. I kind of just was raised where I just figure out things on my own, but that wasn't the right way to do it. So again, it's not a weakness. It's not a sign of of weakness. It's a sign that you want to grow and be better. And I think in medical school where I had to learn another important thing in regards with the help, it's, it's okay to say, I don't know. I always was so fearful if somebody asked me something that I needed to know the answer to something and just get it. Versus just saying, I don't know, get comfortable saying, I don't know. And especially when you become a doctor, I think this is important because even now that I'm, I am a practicing pediatrician, there are things that sometimes parents will ask me and I don't know the answer to that. So what I tell them is, you know, I don't know that, but let me look into it and get back to you. And I've gotten to the point where I feel okay and I feel comfortable and everybody's okay with it as well. Yeah, definitely. You know, I think, um, just getting comfortable with saying, I don't know, is important, like you said. And it's also important because other people are also afraid to say, I don't know. And if they see someone normalizing it and someone doing it and being okay with it, they're more likely to feel comfortable also asking for help and saying, I don't know. The more of us do this, the more we start to create a culture that it's okay to acknowledge when we don't know something. 
I think that the biggest to take away point is just remember the areas of weakness do not define you. It's not a dead end. Instead, it's an area that can grow. And if you can really take that to heart, you're going to get far in whatever it is that you do. Yeah. Um, Also keep in mind that, you know, sometimes if you do ask for help, some people are going to be willing to help and some people won't. Like I had, you know, an anatomy professor in medical school that I asked for help and he just wasn't willing to help me. And, you know, it was discouraging. It was frustrating, but I just had to accept it and move on and try to look for help somewhere else. So try not to take it personally, because again, we don't know the reasons why people, you know, do things, but it's reality. Accept it. Try not to take it personally and don't give up. There's usually someone else that you can ask for help. So then Dr. Marina, I know we learned about growth mindset in the last podcast. So how do you translate growth mindset into now us learning about studying skills? There is definitely a connection. So remember that developing good study habits takes practice, just like developing a growth mindset. Just because you're not great at chemistry or biology at first, it doesn't mean that you can't get good at it. It takes trying things that work and trying some things that don't work and learning from all of it. So don't get down on yourself or don't give up if you take a few classes or a few semesters to improve to where you need to be. In college, it took me really a few semesters to get better at studying, to get better at asking for help, to start getting those grades that were going to make me a competitive medical school applicant. Um, Also, I think it's important to be willing to adjust your strategy if something isn't working. So for example, if you tried studying in your bedroom, but you realized that there are too many temptations or distractions for you there, because maybe there's music, there's, you know, noise outside from the street, you have roommates watching TV, whatever it is. So if that doesn't work, find somewhere else to study. Um, Or if you realize that you had a really hard time this semester because you tried to take too many classes or you maybe did too many volunteer activities, then just cut back on some of those next time. But whatever you do, don't just keep doing the same thing over and over if you realize it's not working. There's this quote from Einstein that said, insanity is trying the same thing over and over and expecting different results. I think that's true. (laughs) Again, growth mindset means that you know that you can learn and you can change over time. But in order to change in a positive direction, you have to step back and realize what are the things that are working and what are the things that are not working. If you just keep reading the same chapter over and over and over again, and you're still not learning, that means that you can't just keep reading. You have to try a different strategy. So again, if things are not working, if things are not getting better, even though you're putting in the effort, that means you have to switch up a little bit what you're doing. But wherever you start, just remember that it is possible to improve. Be patient with yourself and change your strategy when you need to. So Dr. Zulmo, so we've talked about a lot of strategies here in this episode about some good study habits. Now, once we start practicing these things, how do we make them into habits, like something that we'll actually be able to do over and over again and something that becomes automatic? So in one word, that's repetition, repeat, 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 repeat. Making something into a habit takes time and usually it'll take several times until it becomes a habit. I remember when I was in medical school, I had a doctor teacher or an attending ask me a question, and it was regarding me understanding some medical knowledge, and I didn't know the answer to it, and I got really down on myself for it, and her response was very interesting. She said, you know what I told myself when I was a resident? I may have not gotten it right again, but by the hundredth time, I'll get it. When she told me that, I've actually have practiced that for the remaining of my academic and professional years. And the reason is because there's going to be a lot that comes at you. And again, you're trying to break old bad habits and create new good habits. You might make the same mistake a couple of times over and over again, but at one point you'll be able to get it right. But you just have to acknowledge that, okay, let me learn from my past. And let me keep repeating the good habits so that way I eventually will get it. Mm -hmm. I love that. You know, sometimes it takes us a hundred times before we get (laughs) something. You know, there's no like magical number of times that we have to do something before we get better. Sometimes it really just, just takes a long time and practice repetition, repetition, like you said. 
Um, another thing is that I think you can help yourself make something into a habit by making it as easy as possible to do. For example, if you know that social media is a big distraction for you, you can install a program on your phone that blocks you after a certain time limit. Or if you tend to get distracted by your phone notifications, turn off the notifications or put your phone in another room while you study. Remember, resisting temptations wastes brain power that you could be using to learn chemistry. So again, habits is going to take repetition. It's going to take practice. Try to use strategies that make it easier to practice the good habit. And like we said, don't just keep doing the same thing over and over again if it's not working. Thanks for sharing that, Dr. Marina. And I hope everyone that's listening can take something out of today's podcast regarding studying habits and hopefully start applying them, whether you're in high school, if you're in college. It's never too late, as I mentioned earlier, and it's good to start practicing now. Please feel free to email us at our website, www.futureminoritydoctor.com. If you guys have any questions or suggestions or any comments about today's podcast and or and or if you guys have questions about other study habits or skills um, that you guys would want to ask us. Uh, don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook as well. We love it when we see you guys become part of our growing family and we're hopeful that we are making a difference that there will be more future minority doctors um, as well. So until next time, peace and love everyone. Bye.